Okay, so Paul has written his first words of salutation to the believers at Philippi, and we covered all that last week. And in those uh, first words, he says, I have been always praying for you. Remember, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's writing this from prison. And uh, he now says, after he says, I've been praying for you always, verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So I want to hit on those first uh, three verses, 9, 10, and 11, because they present us with a really interesting Uh, thing that I think answers some things I've been curious about and I haven't really understood in the course of my life. Other people have, but let's see what it has to say. So in our verses last week, Paul said that he concludes them in his prayers. And at verse nine, he says, and this I pray. You ready? And he's going to tell us what he prays for. We're in uh, chapter um, one of Philippians, if you just joined us. Okay. So, and we're at verse uh, nine. And so this I pray for, and he lists five things that he prays for. And in those five things, we discover some answers and some insights to concepts I have long wondered about. He says that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, and you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, and those fruits of righteousness uh, with what they are filled with, would be unto the glory and praise of God. So there I suggest are principles of the Spirit that Paul prays those believers would have in their lives. We notice that Paul does not say, I pray for your wealth, I pray for your health, I pray for your any of that stuff that we worry about here in our lives. As an apostle to the Philippians, he says, these are the things I pray for you. And he gives us five things. Let's talk about the first one. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. This verse has brought so much enlightenment to my mind over the past few weeks as I've prepared for this. The first two great commandments we know, love God, love neighbor as self, right? And so what a prayer to hope and pray that others would uh, love with the kind of love, because the word for love there is agapeo, and that's the kind of love that God has. So he says, I pray that you will abound more and more in agapeo, the kind of love that God has. And he adds a line that has gives us so much clarity and, and, and amidst so much confusion about that four-letter word love. In knowledge and in judgment, I pray that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and judgment. This is fascinating. Um, what a clarification. In addition to the desire that their love is present, the idea seems to be that Paul is telling them, my prayer is that your love is intelligent. 
That's really the way we could summarize that. That your agapeo is intelligent. Um, what this means is that they should not buy in to touchy-feely, emotionally driven love in and of itself, only by itself, okay? But to abound in a love that is founded upon reason, logic, information, uh, he calls it knowledge and judgment. First time I've seen this, I, I mean, I've read the New Testament several times, and first time it's hit me this way. And so, uh, not mere blind affection. And it is so vitally important a principle in our faith as Christians. Um, our love is commended and commanded by Jesus. You know, we're to love all, right? But he has added some insight to this kind of love that really liberates us from the bondage of, of the emotional traps of loving, just loving everybody. And I believe in loving everybody. But I believe that that love should be wise and purposeful and with knowledge and with uh, judgment. And I've always kind of wondered, how do you balance that? For instance, I feel badly. I live downtown. I drive home today, and I used this the other day. And there are a hundred homeless people walking in the snow. And I see that most of them are, are doing this, right? So my emotional love says, Sean, you have... Uh, $200 left on your credit card, go spend all of it and get gloves for all of them at Target and then come back and hand them out. That's Christian love. And we've seen that kind of put on us uh, in the faith that it's just this love that is just always, and I believe in always love, but I believe it within the confines of this. So Christian agape love that has intelligence Knowledge and discernment is how he puts it. Uh, it reasons, it thinks, and takes time to assess the situation within the confines of its circumstances uh, so that the love we share, express, and deliver, uh, which is a verb, is in harmony with the kind of love that God has. Do we need the uh, heat on? Do we? Some are saying that we turn on just for a minute, Kathy. The door uh, flew open and I think uh, it's left us cold. So I'm really grateful for this expression provided because Paul is, it's such an important thing in the Christian mind and life because it tells us that our love is reflective and administered in the light of all circumstances involved, not just an emotive response, not just an emotive response. And then he also adds, he says, all knowledge there, uh, gnosko, he says, and in all judgment. And the better Greek word there is ahistathasis, and it means in all discernment. Have you ever been told that? I've heard people say it because that's their opinion, but I haven't seen it supported in Scripture. People will say, no, nah, I don't give to everybody because uh, I just think that some people need to get a job or I don't help everybody because some people think, think people need to get up and learn to work. And that's fine. They have that opinion, but it's always an opinion. But we see it right here, founded in Scripture. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, you have support for judiciously approaching people with love. It's not getting rid of love, 
but it's a form of love to treat people in certain ways and according to their circumstances. And when we think about it, isn't that what God does? Doesn't he look at the whole circumstance and he doesn't give us everything we want or desire? That's his kind of love. So, you know, the humanists will say, God, he's a terrible God. You know, he lets people do this and this. He's doing what he knows is best, even though to us it might look like barbarism. So to love with knowledge and discernment is what Paul prays that they will abound in more and more. Uh, really rounds out the biblical ne- uh, definition of agape love and clears up the emotionally impetuous love that can be uh, a prison for emotionally driven people. You know, you hear of, of people, uh, I mean, I don't mean to, to, there are men this way too, but I've met a lot of mothers who, because of their motherly love, just give and give and give and, and do anything they can and often it's not to the betterment of the, of the person involved. And, and she's being taken advantage of. And so Paul here gives you a biblical justification that your love abounds in gnosko, knowledge, and in discernment of the situation involved. And, um, and you know, it also helps us to be freed from those who prey upon our faith, our Christian walk, who say, yeah, you're being a, really, you're being a great Christian, Right. You know, uh, somebody is addicted to heroin. We unfortunately have a daughter or son who's addicted to heroin and they're out on the street and they show up. Hey, dad, you know, I need a hundred bucks. And you're like, I'm sorry. I just, you know, the situation, the circumstances, I love you. And the best form of love to show you is to not give you the hundred bucks. Oh, that's, that's, that's a great Christian that you are. Listen, I am loving you the way I should love you. You got to understand that, you know, and this is what some people have called it tough love. And I've heard that, but it isn't, it is out of that agape love. It's for the betterment of the person and their situation that you express this the way that you do. Uh, Several years ago, uh, it's been 20 years to tell you the truth. Uh, Is that my daughter? It is. I don't have my glasses on. Um, I thought, man, you sure look like my daughter. Um, several years ago, I chose to, since I've become a Christian, I'm going to love, right? And I became, I kind of said, I'm going to live out this love. And I mean, to be frank, it's kind of embarrassing, but I, I kind of do it experientially. I see what the results of it are. And I have uh, 22 people, as I could recollect, and I have a little journal that I keep it in. And I have said, I'm going to love them the way I believe Jesus wants me to love them. And um, what are the results? There are some souls who will never change ever in their life, no matter what you do. Say, give, help, they will not change, at least in my experience as one person with them. And I don't, I'm not talking about a week of service. I'm talking about two or three or four years of being involved with specific individuals. I have 22 in my list that when they call, you take the call. When they say, I need you to come over, you go over. 
when they say, can you spare some funds? You help with the funds. Can you help me with this? Can you counsel with me on this? Can you do that? You respond, right? And uh, I've tried to do it uh, without exception in these 22 cases. And uh, of course, I'm not perfect. I fail, I fail, but I try really, really hard. And I found that there is a certain percentage of people, no matter what you give them or do for them, they've, that love and that form will be taken advantage of. It will be taken advantage of. And of those who don't fit that category, uh, and I'm talking about people who are kind of emotionally or psychologically challenged, or they've been damaged so bad by something in their life that they're not going to change. Of those who didn't fit that category, uh, that leaves 19, because uh, I had three in the category who uh, would, not, would not change ever. Nothing you could do would ever change them. And they weren't always drug addicts either. But that left 19. And of the 19, four of them were changed and of those four, all four of them had gone to prison or to jail. All four. That experience in their life did something to them. Now, I'm not saying everybody who goes to prison will learn to respond to love and grow and be mature. But in the four that I saw people who would actually appreciate change and try to do better in their life, all four had experienced this with the law and had had their head handed to them in some form or another through the law that caused them to be um, better beneficiaries of love, of agape, unconditional love. I don't know what it means. I'm not a you know, sociologist, but it's been fascinating to me that those who haven't experienced that kind of difficulty, the majority do not change. They haven't, they haven't faced any kind of thing. So when we're led of the Spirit, these things of discernment, knowledge, and agapeo love coalesce into the kind of approach God has with his creations and with his children. And we as beneficiaries of that here on this earth have that opportunity to express that kind of love to others too. When we think about it, it's the love that God has. Doesn't he assess our situation? Doesn't he say, Sean, you are asking for this. I'm not giving it to you. It's not going to help you. I'm going to withhold or I'm going to bless. He knows. And so Paul is praying that they will have the same. We can turn it off. I'm cooking, Kathy. We can have the same um, discernment. And the same knowledge, he prays that our love will abound in it. Abound in it, right? So the mitigating or offsetting word in this passage, though, is that word abound. And from that, I kind of see a, a person who is actively out there living their life and willing to love people, but taking the time, and that's a form of love, taking the time to learn about that person, taking the time to invest in what their situation is, and then taking the time to make those hard decisions on how you help them, whether it's just the listening ear or whatever else they're asking for. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> There's something going around that's terrible. 
It's not just in giving either. It's also in what we share with others. The writer of Hebrews says this, For everyone that uses milk is skillful in the word in righteousness, for is unskillful. Everyone who uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he says, babes in Christ, they're unfruitful in the word. They're, they're drinking milk. But those who have cut their teeth on, on the meat of the word have their senses, and it's the same word in the Greek, exercised to discern good and evil. So as babes, yeah, you're going to make mistakes of helping the wrong person in the wrong way at the wrong time. But as you grow in the word, which is why we gather together here and why we read the word together, as you grow in the word, it helps your senses discern good and evil and how to then respond in love. So I love that. And to arrive at that place, it takes time and it takes discipline. It takes interest in the word of God and uh, trial and error. In the end, a discerning thinking Christian is probably one of the best forms of uh, Christianity. One that can discern with knowledge the facts and love in the presence of those. That's probably one of the best uh, definitions of Christianity from the word that I've seen, bringing it all, bringing more in together. I'm sure more will follow, but so far that blows my mind. Then Paul adds, and it kind of dovetails into what he said at verse two, at verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent, right? So the word approve here means to test or try things that are excellent. And really the word, the King James says things that are excellent, but the word diaphoro means to test things that are different, not excellent. It's not to take, you know, uh, and test everything to see if it's excellent. It's to take things that are different and test them to see uh, what, you, what side you go with, right? And to test, try differing views, differing positions, differing ways to live. I am so for this in the faith, and I don't think it's taught enough as believers. To me, it's a good thing to expose yourselves, uh, uh, if you're a seeker for God, to expose yourself to other views. It's a good thing to test what is different and see, do I believe this? McCraney teaches this, okay, I'll test it. And then this guy teaches that or this woman teaches that. I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it all just to see. There's no harm. There's no fear in learning. There's no fear in reading a secular book. I read the philosophers still all the time because from them you can glean glimpses of good things that they had that dovetail, twice I've used that, dovetail in with the things that are of God. You don't have to fear. And I believe that's, that's really important with raising children. I'm just going to throw my ring in the hat. Uh, Mary and I raising our, we think, hey, get exposed to it. You know, but the Christian world is, no, let's be insular and hide our children from everything so that they can go to a, a college and then learn about evolution, never hearing about it when they grow up and lose their mind. I say, Teach them evolution. Learn about everything in this world. Let them test by reason what is excellent, what is different, and see how it holds up. So uh, that's what Paul says. And because it is in and through this that they rise up through the Spirit and they start to learn to discern between truth and error. 
and you have an opportunity to coach them in the home. Hey, you know, go ahead, go to the party. They're going to have a keg there. Okay, go to the party. Choose if you want to drink the keg. You know, it's up to you. Some drink the keg, some don't. And then they come home and you talk about the problem with drinking when you're 16. It's you let them exposed to these different things. You guide them and you protect them from the real dangerous stuff, but let them see what's different because the dogma I don't think works. It's a term that's used to test metal and how to see its strength. And you can't test the strength of metal unless you expose it to fire. And so I suggest, I promote the idea of expose your every belief. If you're having a doctrinal problem with something, test it, expose it to fire. If you don't believe in this theology or that theology, you don't believe in eternal punishment or you are ardently standing as a Trinitarian or whatever you do, test it against everything else is what Paul's saying. And then he says in his request and his prayers that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Okay, that word sincere uh, in scripture, it really means pure. Uh, that's how Peter uses it in 1 Peter. But we talked about the or- origins of the word sincere last week. Remember, they would put sinisteros on signs outside of pottery. They would sell pottery and they would, they would uh, say it's sinisteros, it's, it's without wax. Meaning the, what potters would do is they would, they, would, they would throw their pots or make their pots and then the pots would have defects in them like cracks and they'd cover them with wax. And, and so what you do, you'd take the pot home, you'd put water in it, flowers, and then when it got heated, it would start to leak. Well, sinisteros meant we don't use wax. And so we take that word sincere and it means without wax in our, in our common vernacular. That you'll be without it's hypocrisy, too. Without hypocrisy, sinisteros, without wax. But he adds, and without offense till the day of Christ. But what's interesting about that word further, and it's a Latin word, sinisteros, is that it really means, when you get to the basis of it, it means judged in the light of the sun. That's what it means. That you will be sinisteros, judged in the light of the sun. Now, I'm going to take a great liberty here. In my heart, in the way I think, I'm going to take that as being judged in the light of the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. And I want to be judged in the light of the sun. Open up my heart, shine a light in there, here you go, and you tell me what's off. And, I, and he does. And there's a lot, right? You want that to happen in your Christian walk here as you engage with people and things. And the day ends and you go to God and you say, man, I really ripped that neighbor apart. Shine a light. Expose me in the light of the sun. Because that's what the pots were, the sinisteros. They were being exposed in the light of the sun. The wax would melt away and the cracks would be exposed. So we don't want to be Christians who cover ourselves in wax thinking that God can't somehow melt through it. We want to be exposed in the light of the sun. And and. Uh, totally transparent and open to God and his judgment and his assessment of who we are. No fear in that. God already knows. But I think you go to him. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking this. I'm thinking that. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I want to do this. I want to do that. And he's like, I know. Let's talk about that. And he starts to work with us when you are sinisteros. So Paul's prayer for them is that they would be without sinisteros and, uh, and, uh, and let 
themselves be transparent, all right? Open, sincere, to have a clear relationship with the living God now, now. Why do I say that and emphasize that? Because I'm of the opinion, based on the totality of Scripture, uh, which I make my life studying, that we all will go before the living God and have a sinisiros experience. We will have the mass and the wax melted away, and we will be revealed for what we are before our Creator. And this life, we do a lot to cover ourselves. That life is all about, no, it's time to be stripped down because he's called a consuming fire in two places in Scripture. And that consuming fire is right in there with melting away all the superfluous and leaving the core of who we are. Christians care about that. Non-Christians, not as much, right? Typically. So uh, being open is lost, though, in a vapor of religious practices. And I got to tell you, it's really a paradox that uh, it's like, what's his name used to say? that the place where the most evil love to hide is within the confines of church. It's because we want to put our best foot forward here. We want to look like we have it all together here. We don't want to be seen as a sinner here or having the problems here. That's why I like Eric over there snoring and sleeping the couch. He doesn't care. He shows up and he sleeps at church. He'll wake up and say, give me 10. I got to go get something to eat. I love that about the guy because he is, does not hide what he's about. And, and religion causes us to want to put up fronts because we don't want to look like failures before God. So the job, my job is to read the scripture and to help you see you want to be exposed before God. You want to have yourself, your mind, your will, your emotion, all the prejudices, all the hate, everything exposed without wax. But Paul adds, and without offense. Now that is really interesting because Not only are you supposed to be open and honest, but you're supposed to be without offense to others. That's difficult because if you strip away what I, all my protective stuff, you're going to find out that I'm mean sometimes. So his prayer is, Sean, I want you to be without uh, wax, but I also want you to not offend people in your transparency. I'm not going to just say, okay, this is me. I'm a jerk. Accept it. I'm being my true Christian self. No, he says, I want you to be transparent, but without offense to others. And so what that means is there has to be humility and contrition involved in that exchange. Somewhere between the two of being sincere, but not being offensive, we have to insert being humble and being contrite before our God. Because we know, compared with what his view is, our stance as humans is pretty bad. If you, if you know the true and living God, when you compare what we are at the core with what he is, it causes us between being transparent and not harming to be broken. And that, that allows us to do that, I think. So not causing injury to others, to your family, to your property, to others' property, to feelings. and The combination of these two ideals of being transparent but without offense is pretty uh, interesting. Difficult to do, Right. Um, so how can someone be authentically transparent and not offend others? It's through that humility that Paul doesn't mention here. Uh, and then he says, of course, he says, till the day of Christ. This is a letter to an actual church of believers then. 
and he says, till the day of Christ. Why does he add that? He uses till the day of Christ twice in these first five verses. Twice, till the day of Christ, till the day of Christ. Isn't it obvious you, as a Christian that you would do what you're going to do until the day of Christ if he hasn't come? It's obvious, but why does Paul keep reiterating this? I want you to do this and this till the day of Christ. And you know the view is that Paul was writing to them then, and in his writings, in his letters, that's all they were, he's, he's, uh, he's reminding them, as your apostolic leader, the day of Christ is coming. Every apostle wrote, the day of Christ is coming. And as the letters got later and later in their dating, they got more emphatic. In fact, when you get to John, it's like the day of Christ is here, right? So all of them are saying until the day of Christ. And that's why he includes it twice in those, in those two verses, five verses twice. Then he adds his last wish or hope in his prayer. And he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus unto the glory and praise of God. And this comes up with three new things he gives us there that he wants. He's praying that those believers in Philippi would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. That gives us a fantastic order right there. And, uh, I like this verse because it succinctly lays out for us what Paul expected and hoped of those believers in that day. And I don't think the advice is any different for believers today. I think it's exactly the same. And he prays that they would be, or would were being, really in the Greek, it's that you're being, it's a better word, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. How do you like that word? They are righteous. What a righteous person. God wants you to be righteous. I, I say that. He says the fruit of righteousness. Fruit is the end product of a thing in Scripture. It's the reason the thing exists. An apple tree does not exist for its wood or for its leaves. An apple tree exists to produce fruit. And so in Scripture, it's, the fruit is always the end product of the thing. And so we ask, what are the fruits of a Christian? And the fruit of a Christian is love, is what Paul tells us. That's the fruit of a Christian. And then love is defined by all sorts of things in that, right? That word righteousness, though, he wants them to be filled or being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And when I came, because I came out of Mormonism, I learned as a rebellious teenager and probably even thereafter until in my adulthood, before I came to know the Lord, I hated that word. I hated the word righteousness. I, I just, are they righteous? They're, they're a righteous brother. Or are they living in righteousness? I just, mm, I couldn't stand the word. And maybe it was because there were people around me who presented themselves as righteous, but weren't. They, I knew they weren't. And so I saw it kind of as a facade. So um, it's a really easy word to misinterpret when you read it. And it's all through the scripture. I mean, the Old Testament is filled with the word righteous and righteousness. All right. And we always interpret it as people who do things right. Righteousness, righteousness, right? But when you step back and examine the word and its application in scripture, and uh, as well as how Jesus described righteousness, you incorporate that. 
I think I've come to a better understanding of it and through some other commentators and Bible scholars that have helped me. But the overall best English words that can be synonymously used with righteous or righteousness are, we would think it's uh, holiness or goodness, but they're fair, fairness, equitable, um, impartial. Now, what, how does righteousness, what does it have to do with fair, equitable, and impartial? That you be filled with the fruits of fair, equitable, and impartial? How does that work? Those words are f- far afield from piety. We think of filled with the fruits of piety, but that's not what it means, okay? And so, those somebody who is fair and impartial and equitable would be pious or would be holy. The, the etymology of the word, if I'm using that right, steps sideways from piety. And um, it stands firmly on being equitably, equitably placed, fairly in place, all right? Impartial to anything else. And the closest word that we have for righteousness in the scripture is justification. Be filled with the fruits of justification. Now let me take it further. Justification is a forensic term, and I, have to, I had to learn what that means. It means that it's used to... Um, in, in solving crimes. It's techniques or methods to solve a crime. It's a forensic term. Justification is a forensic term, all right? And uh, in the faith, justification typically speaks to the judicial act of God, the judicial act of God, where he pardons the sins of those who believe in Christ, and in doing so, he takes into account and then accepts and treats the person as righteous, equitable, impartial, fair. He doesn't treat them as doomed. He doesn't treat them as righteous. He treats them in the the scope of the law, his law, which he's either written on your heart or written on stones if you were a Jew. He sees you you if you are righteous as being balanced. It's, it, the, the payment is done. You are righteous in his eyes. It doesn't mean good. It means you're equitable. It means that you, the, uh, according to the law, there's nothing he can put upon you. And according to the law, there's nothing he can add to you. You are, uh, you are that, all right? And that is all in relationship to God treating you and me fairly, fairly, equitable, impartially relative to his law. That's what it means, okay? In addition to the pardon of sin, which we get when we become justified, that we become a blank slate in justification. Uh, All the sin is forgiven. um, Where people are declared equitable in the face of the law of God, you aren't with offense. You aren't with uh, treasure either. You aren't with good fruit either. You're just seen as without offense, all right? Justification also declares 
that all the claims God's laws have to condemn you are gone. All claims to condemn you are removed in justification. And so the person stands fairly before God when they have been justified, when they are seen as righteous. Note that the law is not relaxed. The law of God and God and his holiness and his laws are not forget, forgotten, but it is clarified to be fulfilled in the strict sense. It's fulfilled. And so any person deemed justified or seen as equitable before God is therefore entitled to all of the advantages and rewards arising from perfect obedience to the law. All of them. If you have been justified in your life, you are then open to receiving all the benefits of having obeyed the law perfectly, which is what the Jews are striving to do, right? So how does that come? How does that justification come? It doesn't come by you, which is why I hated righteousness in the LDS church. It comes by Christ, Jesus, which he adds in the next line. And then we're going to cover that in a second. But he adds, which comes by Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by you. It comes by your faith. And so what it is, is you're sinful in your life. You believe on Christ who obeyed the law perfectly. And God justifies you or sees you fairly in his eyes relative to his entire law. And because you are fairly uh, judged, you then are the recipient of all his blessings. That's how it works in scripture. Paul wrote, and I'm going to read these verses because it's important. It's in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Listen to what he says. Therefore, being justified, that's the word, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you question, wonder, don't understand, don't get it, don't believe it, you haven't stepped into the knowledge of what it means to be a Christian. You're still searching. That's fine. We all started there. If you get that first line, you understand whether you're a Mormon or a Catholic or a Buddhist or whatever, you understand the Christian position. You are justified, made equitable before God by faith in Christ Jesus. Why? He's the one who lived it for you perfectly. We couldn't do it. Okay? By whom we also have access by faith into his grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, you, you don't have to worry anymore. You have peace now. You're not fretting and wondering, you know, is God going to accept me? Oh, oh, I messed up here. Oh, I wondered about that there. You know, no, you have been justified. By what? By faith. That's the beauty of being a Christian. That's the difference from being a religionist, is that Jesus is the one who justifies you. How does he justify you? You believe him. You believe the promises of God about him. He came, he died, he resurrected, he rose, he ascended. He did the work of God on our behalf. Do you believe that? Yes, I do. You're justified by faith. That's the promise. Do you feel it? Sometimes we don't. Do you believe it? That's the key. Do you believe that or not? If you don't believe it, you're not a Christian, okay? I don't know what God does to people who don't believe it. That's between him and them. But I do know what he does for those who do believe it, right? He justifies them. 
That's what he says. Paul goes on in verse 3 of chapter 5 of Romans, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience. See, what happens is he justifies you. You're a blank slate, tabla rasa. Your sins are gone, but you're not good. You're not bad. You're just justified. And then he starts growing that fruit, the end product of a Christian life. I want now my children, my sons and daughters of God, to not only be justified and have their sins forgiven, but according to the law, I want them to produce fruit. What kind of fruit? Fruits of love. And so he says, therefore, and not only so, we glory in tribulations. Why? Because when I'm driving down the road and my car breaks down and I'm waving for people to help and they drive by that tribulation and they're not stopping, I, in my mind, learn through that tribulation to have, be patient with them, to not hate them, to grow in that. The tribulation allows us to do it. That's what he says. And, and that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. A hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Did you hear it? You don't earn your justification. Christ died for us when we were the worst of the worst, not the best of the best, which is what religion teaches. Be your best and God will make up the difference. No. Christ died for the ungodly, the worst of the worst. Why? To justify you. Why? So then you start having God work in you to learn to love because that's what he is, right? Paul goes, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. There's that word righteous. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. And it's through his death that the justification comes. Through his death and resurrection and everything else. So it's through that death, that propitiation on the cross, that that justification comes. Why? Because he was the lamb who obeyed the law perfectly, yet was sacrificed for the world. And so he's sacrificed up on the cross for the world, perfect, and that fulfills the law. How? You believe on that, you're justified, righteous before God. Now you let him work in you, right? But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood on the cross, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So getting back to verse 11 where Paul wrote, I pray that you're being filled with the fruits of the righteousness. I pray you'll be filled with the fruit of having been justified, having been seen as without any sin, as having been complete, the fruit of that. I pray you'll be filled with the fruit of that. All that impartiality, Paul adds a line that makes sense, which are by Jesus Christ. You think you're working for it? Forget about it. Phenopole. You're not working for it. They're by Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel message. That's Christianity. When you add or take away from that, you are altering that message, which it's by Jesus Christ, right? 
meaning we're all justified before God in Christ, and he adds, unto the glory and praise of God. So we have an order there. In other words, filled with the end products of having been seen equitably by God, the grand creator of all things, seen equitably because you believe in Christ. He says, it, it, uh, you're equitably before law, which are by Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. And I sometimes wonder if that's the meaning for a Christian life, that God, through his children, is able to have us, because his son saved us, share his love with the world. Now, that's the whole meaning, that he has other cre- creations and creatures who haven't been saved, they haven't changed, they don't love like he wants. And so that might be the part of the plan of salvation for the Christian, is that God through us is getting his love out the way his son got his love out. And that's how it just keeps going and keeps going. That might be the purpose of the Christian life. I don't know. Those who have had faith in Christ have been justified by him, made righteous. And Paul's prayer is, to, is that the end product of this will be the fruit of the spirit, which is, of course, long-suffering, patience, kindness, meekness, all that stuff. What for? Unto the praise and glory of God. People don't understand that question. Oh, God, he wants to have all the praise and glory. That's pretty much why we're doing it, is because God gets the glory. We don't get the glory. First of all, we weren't justified by ourselves. We were justified by faith in him. Why would we get the glory? And, and he doesn't even say even the praise and glory of Christ. He says the praise and glory of God. It's Christ did that so that we would glorify God through the righteous acts of our lives, the love acts of our lives. And that's the end game, that God may be glorified in the work of his son and in the labors of those who place their faith in him. And so after giving those directives, Paul slips into a completely different direction. But those first five, uh, those first verses, man, they are loaded with stuff to help you understand some really intricate things about the faith. Let's read uh, verse 12 through 20. 20. I'm going to be able to cover them. We're going to go quick because they aren't really filled with anything but Paul giving them information. And so he says, but I would, he says, I've been praying for you now. He says, but I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing comfortably in confident, excuse me, waxing confident in my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let's just jump through those quickly. Go back to verse 9. Paul now writes more about his circumstances and situation of writing this letter to the believers in Philippi at that time. And he says, I would have you understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. The things that have happened to me have allowed the gospel to go further. That's what he says there. Apparently, from the words Paul uses, he wanted the believers at Philippi to understand some of the details of his imprisonment and what it's meant, right? And so he starts off by telling them he wants to understand that the gospel has furthered because of his imprisonment. We don't know why he wants to inform them of this. Uh, Maybe they were interested in his life. Maybe rumors bandied about that said Paul's in prison because he was a bad guy. And he's saying, hey, because I've been put in prison, the gospel's gone out further, fallen out, have happened. The gospel has, uh, have fallen out, is better understood, as have happened, which means that the furtherance of it has continued. And so instead of 
uh, these things that have happened to Paul being a hindrance to the gospel moving forward, which was his sole interest, he says they have gone further out. And I'm going to add a, a line to this verse before I read verse 13. So much so, I'm going to add there for your understanding, so much so, verse 13, that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And so Paul was put in chains and part of his, part of his punishment was he was chained to another soldier 24-7. Of course, the soldier wasn't there uh, 24-7. They changed their, uh, their time that they had to be chained to him, but he always had someone with him. And they were chained to each other during his time. And so my bonds are manifest in all the things that are happening in this. A brutal time, whatever the purpose was, I guess it was they didn't want Paul spreading more of the stuff he was put in prison for. And so the guard was there to listen to everything that he had to say. That's what the scholars seemed to think uh, was happening. And he adds at verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident in my bonds. Many of the brethren who are Christians outside of Rome or in Rome are watching me and they see I'm chained to a guard and I'm still able to share and talk and write letters. They are waxing bold or confident in what they're seeing through me. And so the gospel is going out in furtherance. And he says, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If they, they can see me doing it while I'm in jail, tied to a guard, they are moving boldly without fear. So um, perhaps they saw Paul as a champion of the faith and that's what it was happening. That's what he seems to be saying. Whatever it was, Paul now speaks of the men who were emboldened to share Jesus. And he presents a principle that's often shared among Christians today. At verse 15, some indeed preach, he's talking about those who have been emboldened, Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, but, but not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So he says, of those who are being confident in sharing Christ, some are doing it, he says, not of goodwill, and some are doing it of strife, some are doing it for contention and, and, and to add affliction to my difficulties. That's why they're doing it. And then he adds at verse 17, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for a defense of the gospel. And he says, what then? Notwithstanding, verse 18, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So jump back quickly to verse 15 with me as we wrap this up today. Some of these bold men, he says, indeed preach Christ to envy and strife. They come in talking about Jesus as a means to engage in confrontation and strife. And then he says, and also some of goodwill. After admitting that they preach the gospel, uh, we've all seen what that looks like when you have people who preach the gospel for envy and for strife. And uh, so you got to be careful. We don't follow into that for contention that you're in your church and someone steps in and there starts to get all this. That's what Paul seems to be saying was happening there. And he says it added to his bonds. It made his chain to this guy much more difficult in, when that would ha was happening. He says, in some of goodwill, which seems to be that they shared the gospel from pure motives to bring peace and love and faith to the people of Rome. And then he further elaborates and he says, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, not sincerely, supposing to add to my affliction, to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set 
for a defense of the gospel. The one preaches Christ of contention as a means to harm him, he seems to be saying. And then he adds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for a defense of the gospel. And then he gives the summary line, what then? What then? This is happening, what do we say? Notwithstanding, every way, listen, whether in pretense, that means without sincerity, or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, I will rejoice. What then seems to be a line that means what follows from all this? that I've just told you. What, what effect does it have? He says, notwithstanding every way, I mean, no matter in what way Jesus is preached, no matter what way Jesus is preached. Do you get that? I've had to learn a hard lesson on this. Coming out of Mormonism, when I came out, I was fervent apologetic. No, 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 no. Quiet, quiet, quiet. You are wrong. You're a liar. You're, this is a false gospel. This is a false Christ. And it may be probably is, is, <laughs> but, and I say that with humility and kindness, but Christ is preached. They preach the risen Lord. They preach born of a virgin. They preach a perfect life. They preach fulfilled the law. They preach died on a cross. Okay. I was focusing on what was wrong and not what Paul says here. Hey, whether it's in pretense and without sincerity I'm not going to judge them. God will judge them and their actions. Christ is preached. And I have come to believe, and you may disagree with me, but when Christ is brought in the spirit for seekers of truth, that will work to their benefit. If Christ is brought in badly or in pretense, the spirit will move those who are seeking him rightly. But when Christ is brought in to a non-seeker who just wants, and it's, it's a false Christ, it's going to be detrimental. But it doesn't matter anyway because they're not seekers. And so I appreciate what he says here and the attitude that comes with it. Why? I think the, me- the message is central to the words that Jesus preached and the spirit that is present, that those who seek him in spirit and in truth will find him, even if he's being preached badly, falsely by people who don't have sincerity. Nothing can hinder the spirit of truth to come forth. And that's why God appears, I can't say this, I can't speak for God, but that's why it seems to me that God allows the proliferation of false philosophies to exist on this earth. Is that seekers will hear the truth in that mess and find him. Non-seekers, it doesn't matter what is being preached. And I've come to believe that. Nothing can hinder the spirit. So what then, notwithstanding any or every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Paul says, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, yea, will rejoice. Pretense or truth. So, uh, and that final line, whether, it's, or whether Christ is preached in pretense or truth, it helps us destroy another myth that goes around with our religion, and that is, I have to be worthy to share Jesus. I have to be worthy to pray. I have to be worthy to, be, to preach, to be a missionary, to share Jesus. I have to have that. Paul says people can be preaching him, whether in pretense or in truth, with bad intention or good, Christ is preached, the Spirit will move on that message. And so it destroys that idea of the preacher has to be holy, right? 
And there's some people, I'm not going to pray. I'm not, you know, last night was Saturday and I did this. And I'm not going to pray. Baloney, baloney. Christ is the focus in the Christian faith, not us, remember? We've been justified by him. So we don't look at ourselves as being the ones that are carrying the thing and the load and the message. And we are Jesus. We, he is the one. And so he clears that up for us. He says, whether they're preaching in, in, in falseness, in sincerity, or in truth, Christ is preached. And he lets us know that that's the key to it all. So um, that's the point of the four verses. Man and all of our chicanery and ways is not in charge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the hands of the Spirit. Why? Jesus Christ did everything necessary and those who look to him in faith are completely justified. And Paul's prayer is that we will now grow in that love that we discussed earlier. We might take this, if, if, if you're willing, to relax a little bit on those who are doctrinally and theologically askew. That we don't have to worry so much. It's not our job to jump in and, and destroy them. It's our job to love them with a discernment that, that Paul talked about. And know that Christ is being preached in, in some of those cases. And we rejoice in that. And it lessens, loosens us up from the bonds of anger or policing that might guide us. And I've been under that spirit. I really have. And it really does show here what, what Paul says. It's not necessary because the spirit is what will move people. We do our best to teach the truth. Let the spirit guide. All right. Questions, comments, insights, please. Our audience at home. Love to learn from you guys. Back corner. Oh, do we have a Vanna? Oh. Seth is our Vanna. I'm sorry my legs aren't quite as nice as Vanna's. Oh. <laughs> we all knew that. We weren't going to say it, though. <laughs> you know, I just wanted um, to say back from the very first part of today about the tough love or whatever. Um, I don't like tough love, you know, I, I and, and I don't like to give it either, but, but I don't like to get it from God. You know? <laughs> but I hadn't, when my grandson was a baby and he had to have operations and my son, who was 24, 25 at the time, I mean, when Jordan was, he had, I remember one time going to this place at Primary Children's and taking little Jordan and handing him over to the people who were going to do that. And Jordan is just crying and pleading, and Grandma's like, I got to go, you know. Like, but my son knew that he needed that operation, and he had the strength to hand over his son he would, if it would have been up to grandma, kid would have died, you know, because yeah. I couldn't do it. But that tough love really is, and that's why God does it. And I go back to that a lot when I'm feeling bad about that's a good the one, tough Trish. love I'm getting. Thanks, Trish. That's good. Yeah. Anybody else? So, what's your name? I don't you... know it. I'm Tammy. Thank you. <laughs> so how? How would you suggest dealing with, um, so I've jumped from, you know, years ago when I was so, um, religion is bad and it's all just, and then to 
to being much more accepting and loving, and that has felt very right and very good. But over the past year or so, I've been in lots of conversations, both with very evangelical Christians and with LDS friends, both all friends. But when they state those strong religious views, um, I've tried to just remember and focus on that common love of Christ, and so I just kind of stay silent. But it's getting more and more frustrating, <laughs> and it doesn't always feel right. And, and so how do you suggest dealing with that, that balance of, yes, focusing on the common focus on Christ and that love, but those things can get in the way, the over-focus on the sin, which then gets back to, to, to the 50-50 and not 100% him, 0% us, and, and that gets to losing the key grace yeah. of God. So how do you suggest dealing with that, especially in I deal with it too because of uh, what I do, Tammy. And so uh, I wait till first I'm invited. So if I'm in a conversation and we're talking about people and they're starting to throw, th I wait till I'm invited. If they say, Sean, what do you think? Then I tell the person who asked me, what do you think? What I think about it. Never, never cutting corners. But I also, uh, and, and then I realize I have to trust God will work with them and that it's there in his hands. It's not up to me. And that's something that we really have to work on because, you know, you got to share it so that they can know the truth. And, and it's true, but the spirit works on them. So in love, I share when I'm invited. And if I'm not invited, I keep my mouth shut. I do. I do. You don't, you don't know me personally with people. No, actually, I'm Karen here. I just want to introduce my sister, Jamie. Hey, Jamie. This is who we've all been praying for. All right. And uh, she's here and, and uh, doing way better than it should be possible. But thank you for your lesson today. It was needed. So glad you're Very here. Much liked it. Yeah. Both of you. Been busy. I've been listening to you at home. But thank you for, thank for you, all that you do. So good to see you. Welcome. We have a few people I haven't seen in a while who stumbled in here. Well, the bars closed early today or what? <laughs> totally. <laughs> What'd you say? State conference. Ah, it's awesome. All right, let's have a prayer. Love you guys. Thanks for enduring and uh, teaching. And we have a prayer list here. Thank you, Mags. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're uh, grateful for uh, your spirit, which is present because of your son. And uh, grateful that you love this world so much you sent him. And we pray that we will walk in that faith and look to him and give us that, the, the, the wisdom to speak and say the right things at the right time and, and uh, according to you, if we're supposed to at all. And help us as, in our walk. We're always growing, so we're always changing and we, we are learning to adapt and, but we just pray that we'll take Paul's prayer to those saints at Philippi and, and use it to our benefit as Christians now. We pray for people who are struggling. We do that every week because this, this life is about the struggle and, and uh, the difficulty we all face. And so we pray that you'll support those who are within the sound of my voice, who are struggling with faith, who are struggling with love, struggling in their health, uh, with their loneliness, um, struggling with family, 
theology, whatever it is. And we just pray that you will make yourself known. That's my prayer, that you will make yourself known in their lives, in our lives. And help us to realize that you are there and you are the captain of that ship and you are driving and we can trust that you're at the lead. And can relax in that peace and knowing that you use us, but it's not up to us. And we pray for that. We pray for a family of Darlene Crosby, who passed away this week. Pray for uh, the Erskine family, who lost Diana a couple weeks ago. Uh, we pray for Gaylene, who had a pretty bad accident, and that she'll recover from that. We uh, pray for our brother Eric, and we pray for others who are on our hearts quietly now, who aren't on this list. Family, friends, enemies, neighbors, bosses, employees, employers. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray for those who are on our hearts. Help us to exit from this building and be Christians to our neighbors now. And uh, just let your spirit shine. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.